The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 83. Lithuania has the fastest internet speeds in the entire world. A new tourist tagline. Welcome to Download Heaven. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and whether this is your first time listening and you've come because of the amazing interview we have for you today, or you just listen to us as often as you shower, which I'm hoping is every day, thank you for tuning in today and making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And no matter how many times you've listened, today is your lucky day because I've got an awesome guest on today, someone who has worked across the globe as a diplomat for the U.S. government and who also holds the distinction of putting up with me and my shenanigans for the last 25 years, my good buddy, Nick Hirsch. Nick, thanks so much for coming on today and welcome. No worries, Trap. Well, 25 years, that's, that's hard to think about. 20, yeah, I guess maybe 23. I kind of fudged that a little bit, right? I think we started hanging out when we were seven or eight. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, it's great to be here. I'm happy to you know, finally get a chance to talk to you officially for once. Yeah. And who would have thought back in seventh grade, you know, when we were b- busy discussing, you know, what merit badges we should get for Boy Scouts <laughs> and lamenting the fact that we couldn't get up the courage to talk to girls, which surprisingly, those two things go hand in hand. Yeah, I know. But it's amazing how Boy Scouts and, uh, you know, lack of social skills all kind of line up. At yeah, the wrap time. themselves up into one. But 20 yeah. years later, we'd be doing things cool enough that thousands, maybe millions. Let's hope for millions. Millions of people would listen to. Yeah. Yeah. And what's cool, Nick, is that actually a reader wrote in and requested that I bring on guests. And I'm looking for your suggestions on what shows you guys want to hear. So you can email me, Trav, at Extra Pack of Peanuts. You can also send us your tweets at Pack of Peanuts. But a reader wrote in and said, you know, I'd really like you to interview people who have jobs that they live around the world and they travel, but that are, you know, kind of expats. Like they're not nomadic, they're not location independent, things like that. And he brought up the idea of the Peace Corps and we'll have a guest on about that. And immediately I thought though, hey, I know someone who does a pretty cool job and that's you. Yeah, no, it's cool. And it's it's funny because it's this, it's a cool mix of sort of the, the nomadic lifestyle since you're never any place for too long. But you also get a nice chance to settle in at the same time, you know, being there for two or three years. So it's, at least for me and my attention span, I think it's the perfect amount of time in any uh, one place. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about, you know, how you got into the U.S. Foreign Service, you know, what it's like kind of day to day as a diplomat. I'm sure a lot of people hear diplomat and think, you know, varying degrees of things. So we're going to kind of shed some light on that. We're also going to talk about some of your favorite travel destinations because a lot of people don't know this, but you are my best traveled friend or best, well, wow. most well-traveled friend. Let's put That's it that way. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the one always coming to you saying like, Hey, I've never come to this area. Have you been here? And invariably you're like, yeah, I went there like 15 years ago on a backpacking trip before I even knew what backpacking was. So yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to get to talk about some really cool things that you've done. You're always the one kind of giving me tips of where I should go when I go to a place. So yeah, the man behind the man of Extra (laughs) Pack of Peanuts there. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and if you guys do have questions, remember, we'll put everything in the show notes, all the links we talk about that that Nick will touch on. And if you have questions, you can always drop us comments in the show notes. That'll be at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash US Diplomat. So that's a nice, easy thing to remember. You can go there, ask questions. I'll forward them to Nick. He can come back with some answers if we haven't touched on him here. So I guess the best place to start is really just what is your job? Like, what is a U.S. diplomat? Because, you know, I always thought, hey, they're these really cool people who can do basically no wrong and drive around in fancy cars and other places of the world is that <laughs> i have an i have an outback travis i've been used outback <laughs> all right so um, not exactly fancy cars all no, the time not fancy cars well first off this is all just my personal experience i mean it, there's no real official line on any of this stuff so just going from my own uh what i've seen and and what i know from myself right not affiliated with a government's opinion on anything just a random I, you know, regular you, you guy can't be too careful with yeah. uh with this so yeah so I think what's funny about this job and that I didn't realize until probably well after I'd started it is that it's just an incredible amount of variety. So within the foreign service, there are like, we, we say that there's five cones for, for generalists, I guess. So those are sort of the foreign service officers and that that's the consular work management work. So that's like the daily running of an embassy, political work, economic work, and then public diplomacy work. Those jobs sort of run the gamut of everything from, you know, facilities management at a post. So just making sure that the air conditioners work to issuing visas and helping Americans in distress to trying to uh, work with the general public in whatever location you're in to, to reflect American opinion and let them know what our policies are on things to going out and meeting with political or economic contacts and reporting back to Washington on, on what they're saying, what's happening on the ground. In it's that, hard to wrap it up with a pretty bow, I guess. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But then also within that, there's, or actually, sorry, outside of that, there's specialist jobs. So office managers, um, engineers, computer technicians, um, people who come in with a, a defined skill set, because Lord knows I didn't come in with any skills whatsoever. <laughs> but people who, who come in with a career as an engineer or as a computer technician coming in to do that then for the state department and getting to do the same things. I mean, doctors, nurses, it's, it's crazy. So it's this whole sort of self-sustained little community where pretty much any job in the real world is real world is reflected uh, in the state department as well. So are they looking for podcasters and bloggers? That's I guess the big question. I mean, they're, they're at least, here in Washington, there are graphic designers. There's a lot of this sort of new social media stuff going on. So yeah, it, there's a lot of opp- opportunity in that regard. We should, I guess, clarify too, because I always got confused. I mean, the Foreign Service is kind of the branch of the government we're, we're speaking about here. And is everyone under that then, like you said, the people who are in the cones, the five people in the cones, so you're in one of those, you do public diplomacy and stuff. Right. You're considered a, a, a diplomat, I guess would be your, your title, correct? Yeah, but then, I mean, people who, like civil servants who work here in Washington are still diplomats. The specialists overseas carry diplomatic passports and do diplomatic work. So I think it's it's a gray area that I didn't quite understand when I joined. Right, um, right. And, and, you know, you still learn a lot in that regard as, as time goes on. And also, it's worth pointing out that it's not just people for the State Department. So the, there's a foreign agricultural service. There's a foreign commercial service. 
So people who work for other government agencies who still work out of embassies overseas. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, I have friends who work for, for commerce, um, who were in Mumbai with me, who, uh, are there simply to promote trade between the U S and India. And they, they report up to the commerce department, even though they're in the foreign service. Wow. So it's, it's a much wider scope than I imagined. Right. Right. Well, let's, talk too about how to get in because I've always said that if I wasn't doing this and if I was more intelligent that's kind of the <laughs> that's kind of the catch right not the yeah. I'm doing that's, this part it's it's entirely intelligent strategy yeah the catch is if I was more intelligent that I would love to be in the foreign service and can you walk people kind of through the process of how you know if someone says okay well well this sounds cool you know I'd like to live abroad I'd like to live you know two one to two to three years in a place and then move around, you know, get paid fairly well, have a stable job through the U.S. government. You know, I want to be in the foreign service. How do they go about even beginning this process? So really, I think you start with the State Department website if you are looking for a state job. And then you you see whether you want to do a specialist job, whether you'd qualify to be a computer technician or a nurse or something like that, in which case it's a totally separate hiring process that I don't really understand. It's much more skill set oriented. Um, for generalists like me, you sign up, you go and you take a, a written test, which is, you know, a, a series of multiple choice tests. There's maybe like two or three involved and some writing exercises. And then after that, um, there's sort of a mail-in essay portion, uh, which has a different acronym every couple of years. So I'm not sure what that is right now. I think it's the Q, QPR, maybe. Ultimately, the, the final step is you're brought to D.C. or sometimes it's another city in the U.S. And they have these group interviews. And uh, it's that's sort of like a day-long series of interviews and uh, some writing exercises, that sort of thing. So it's, it's a long process. For me, I took my first test in December of 2008, passed the written part in the – or sorry, passed the oral part in the summer of 2009, and then didn't start with the State Department until the summer of 2010. Wow. So when you go for that first test, anyone can take it, right? And they go to, you know, there's places all over the country that you can sign up to take it. And you go in and it's, what is it, like a four or five hour long test? It's, it's yeah, it's like three or four hours okay. of questions. I mean, it's all over the place. It's everything from current events to sort of like lifestyle questions. I mean, not like, not lifestyle, but sort of asking about, you know, how you, how you interact with people, sort of like a social skill portion and then yeah just the essay portions and that's that's tough to get through right i mean they call it, it or some people call it the hardest test in the world now i don't know if that's you guys just blowing <laughs> smoke up each other's you know yeah whatever but talking to each other yeah right um, right that's diplomats saying we're so smart right but, but the, the cool thing though is that it is and I, I do truly believe this it's very much a meritocracy so there's no there's no real bar to clear i think you need to be 18 years old and an american citizen you don't need to have a college degree. It, it's really like you just need to pass these tests. So it is, in a sense, very cool that uh, it is open to everyone. I think if you don't pass it the first time, you have to wait a year and then take it again or wait a year before you can take it again. How and, quick uh, do you find out if you pass it? Is it like instant when you do it or is no, it pretty quickly No, I think it's, after? it's a couple weeks or a month maybe. Okay. That might have changed, but when I did it, that's how it was. And what would you suggest? Because the written part, I think, is you know, or, or excuse me, the first part, the multiple choice and the little essay ones where you go in and sit in a certain place and take it, you know, that's what a lot of people don't get past, at least in the beginning, you know, you have to get past that step to go on. 
you had a little interesting experience. I remember talking to you about this because I was considering taking the test. What would you suggest if someone says, you know, I really want a good shot at passing this. Like, how can I study for it? Is there really anything that you can do to study to help your chances? I don't know. I mean, for me, I I reviewed this kind of sounds stupid, but I reviewed a lot of Wikipedia pages for things I didn't know. Um, certainly for historical things and economic things, just to make sure I had some idea. The cool thing is that when you sign up, they send you a sample test. So that should give you a pretty good idea of what you know and what you, what you need to read up on. But I think, you know, the standard, the standard suggestion, which I truly believe is that you should be reading the New York Times or the Washington Post every day and just getting a sense of what's important, what's going on in the world and sort of where the U.S. stands in relation to X issue, you know? Yeah, because you said it was a lot of hypothetical type questions, but involving the U.S. Not not as not simple like SAT type questions. Read this paragraph and fill this out, but more critical thinking stuff, right? Right. Um, so yeah, there there is a, a fair amount of it goes beyond simply uh, you know what is the capital of X. It is more sort of hypothetical questions that you'd still need to know the the basic facts on, but that you need to synthesize a bit of, you know, a, a couple different bits of information. All right. So someone takes a test and they pass that one, then they then they send in their essays and they pass that. Then they go into the group interview and then they pass that. Then what happened to you? Because you said, you know, it was a, basically a year bef- from when you passed to when you actually started working with the Foreign Service. Yeah. So um, they do a background check then. So that's just diplomatic security goes out and meets people that you know. They check in, just making sure that you know you're you're a good person. Who's uh, you know? They call your friends from elementary school. Yeah, exactly. They they. I mean, it, it's in depth and as it should be. Yeah. So that that takes a while, and especially if you've lived overseas, actually, that takes a little bit longer because they check in with where you lived before. So for me, they had to. They you know they ran checks in Japan and Germany and Canada. That took quite some time, and then after that, they put you on the registry. So you're basically ranked by your cone according to the score you got on the oral exam as they see the number of spots open for the next orientation class. They just take people from the top of the list. So if you get a good score on the exam, uh, you're not on the list very long, but you can pass the exam and still never get off the list. I think you're on it for 18 months before you drop off it. Okay, so even if you pass, if you get through this hardest test in the world type thing, you pass, you might not be guaranteed a spot in the Foreign Service, just depending on how many other people are ahead of you and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And I know one of the questions that people always have, you know, like it sounds great, like, oh, I get to travel around the world. How does it work with where you get placed? Because a lot of people probably think, okay, I want to go to Paris and that'd be great. I could live in two years in Paris or London, right. but they don't think like I could live two years in Lebanon or Syria. Well, maybe not Syria, but um, <laughs> yeah. Yemen or something like, or, or yeah. Pakistan. So, so when you start uh, your first two tours are what they call directed. So basically you get a massive list of a hundred places on it, you know, ish. And, um, you rank them. Um, and you know, there's, there's, it varies as time goes on exactly how they do it, but essentially you rank them. And then, uh, this group of people who are, we call them career development officers who basically help you with your assignments. They, they sit down and uh, look at your preferences and assign you. So you have some input, but, but not a lot. Um, that's for your first two tours. And then after that, you basically have to go out and find yourself a, a job every two or three years. You you reach out to the embassy you want to work at, you know, send them your resume, have it have interviews. It's it's not the easiest process. 
your situation is is interesting. So you first went, if you want to tell people kind of your track, I guess, or yeah, where the so places I, you um, went and how that so worked out. I was lucky in that uh, there weren't a lot of public diplomacy jobs on the list for entry-level people when I first came in. So usually it took a couple tours before you could do a public diplomacy job. Um, but for whatever reason, with my orientation class, uh, there were six or 16 or 17 of us in public diplomacy, and there were 16 public diplomacy jobs on our list. And I really liked Eastern Europe. That's you know where I wanted to live. That's uh, where I'd done my grad school work. So I, I bid on, I think, Armenia and Lithuania and a few others um, really high. Those were the top of my list, and I got Lithuania. So I was really lucky and I was really happy to do, you know, I was the deputy public affairs officer. So like the number two person in public affairs in Lithuania, it was cool. And, you know, it, I got uh, eight months of Lithuanian language training before I went, which was really nice. It's not the easiest language to learn, but it was cool to be paid to learn a language. And um, then I went to Lithuania. It was supposed to be for two years, but of course I met my wife in A100, the training class. So, uh, after 15 months in Lithuania, I was pulled out from there and sent to Mumbai. So as soon as you stopped thinking about merit badges, you met your wife, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was that was the key. And and so you so you're in Lithuania then for the for the 15 months, and and we should mention too, like you said, before you go away to a country, obviously you have to learn the language for for most countries. For most was, jobs, yeah. yeah. And so you get language training or training in DC for a certain amount of time. What usually like six to months to a year about um yeah it's, it's somewhere in there if you're getting language it's it's usually between six months to a year and for more functional training those courses are usually about a month or two okay and then you went to lithuania and you're supposed to do two years in lithuania and you did and you did most of yeah. that and then you went to mumbai for two years right right and so and then one of the things i think most people know as they're joining is that one of your first two tours has to be a consular tour so you have to do the visas, that sort of thing. Um, so mine was in Mumbai. It's not top 10. It's top 20 in the world for non-immigrant visas. So for like student visas and tourist visas and business visas. But it's in the top 10 for immigrant visas. It does almost all of India's immigrant visas there. So uh, it's a it's a busy post. Uh, but it was cool. It was a brand new building. It was it was a good place to work. And then, so and you didn't have much say in going to Mumbai. You you know, like you mentioned, you kind of got one of your first choices, uh, in your first post with Lithuania. You know, what should people expect with their first couple postings? Should it just be like, well, I could get put anywhere, and that's maybe what I should go in expecting? So it's it's funny. Um, you see people who come in with with a language, so like Chinese or or Spanish. You know, the the languages that are really important for the U.S. globally. And uh, frequently they are sent to Mexico or sent to China on their first tour because they, you know, they have to use their language skills. Um, but then just as frequently, it seems someone will come in with French and expect to be going to Paris and then they're sent to Chinese language training and then they go to China for a couple years. Or, you know, there's a guy in my class who came in with Portuguese and there was a job that they needed to fill immediately. So he ended up going to Angola for two years, just sort of out of the blue. I don't, I don't know how much he wanted to do it or how much he expected to get it. But since there was no one else who spoke, spoke Portuguese in my class, you know, that was sort of needs of the service, as they say. So, And then, hey. and now you're back in Washington, right? So, so you can do posts that then revolve through Washington. So even though you're in the foreign service, you're not always living abroad. Right. So there are jobs back in Washington that, and most people do them a couple times, if not more frequently. So yeah, there's all sorts of jobs working for 
the regional bureaus. So right now I work for European Affairs. Sometimes people come back and work for functional bureaus. So, you know, Marissa's first tour, my wife, her first tour was in democracy, human rights, and labor for a year. So there's a lot of variety back here. So you can do a lot of different things. It's cool. And how long is the typical tour? Is it two years in a place and then you move on or can it yeah, be shorter first, or longer? Your first tours are two years. Uh, they want you to, to get a variety as quickly as possible. And then after that, it's usually two or three. Sometimes people do four. Sometimes people do a year. For people who, who are going to Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan or now Libya and Yemen as well, it's, it's usually just a year. Okay. So those, those harder posts or, or maybe less desirable posts, you'll be, you'll do a year and then, you know, your, your time will be served there. Yeah, exactly. It's funny there. I would have thought they were less desirable coming in, but you know, those jobs are as competitive as any is in Pakistan, especially a lot of people want to go. It's a really, you know, it's a really interesting place to work and it's high profile. So people do want to work there. So as you get down the path after about two or three different tours, does it become more common that you can pick and choose where you're going? Does it become easier to get the postings that you would think is more desirable? I, I mean, in general, yes. So, you know, if, if initially they're sort of telling you where to go, at this point, you've sort of like built up a network of people. You, you've worked in a couple different places. So you have an idea of what the issues you want to focus on and the regions you want to work in. So at this point, uh, after your first couple tours, you actually start reaching out to the, the embassies or the offices in Washington that you want to work in. And you start sending your resume to them and you do the interviews. So it's almost, it's not like getting rehired every couple of years, but it, you know, you are competitively going against your peers to try and get these jobs. Does it somewhat become specialized then based on the language that you learn? So for I know, for example, you had always had a desire to be in Eastern Europe and Russia and you like that part of the world. So let's say if you get in that part of the world, like you had Lithuania in the beginning, does it make it much easier to get back there kind of long term? Maybe that's where you settle in into that region? Or are you kind of screwed if you don't get in the first couple of times? So it, it really depends. I think in general, if you do want to stay in a region and you do a good job, they're always happy to, to keep you there to a certain extent. I mean, no one that I know of has worked an entire career in the exact same region. Um, they refer to it as sort of like a major and minor system. So they want you to focus on one, one major region or like even one major topic that sort of spans regions um, and then have some expertise in another field or in another region. So, you know, with me and my interest in Eastern Europe, it, it's conceivable that I could do, you know, like the majority of my tours, at least in the region. For some posts, particularly in Asia, where the languages are really hard and people are, are spending two years learning Korean or Japanese or Chinese, they tend to do more tours there just because they've built up the expertise there. And there are a lot of posts there, particularly in China and Japan, where you can sort of, you know, go from the embassy to one of the consulates and back and forth. But they do also, you know, I, I, I say that, but I... In general, I think they really do want you to experience a lot. They always talk about how I've heard, at least when I came in, that some people get penalized because they don't build up regional expertise um, and that they just sort of bounce around and go with whatever job interests them at the time. Um, but then I've also had bosses who've literally worked like one or two tours in every single bureau. So it really just depends, I think. So the traveling part, it's like a perk of the job almost. We want you to get out and we want you to see the world. That's why you're a foreign service officer. So it's kind of built in that you will have to go to other posts and that's basically expected. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's entirely expected. And I think, you know, professionally, it's very much expected that that you will travel, obviously, that you'll move around. I mean, not even overseas, but domestically, a lot of the domestic jobs have a whole lot of travel sort of at the drop of a hat, um, you know, like, oh, we'll actually need you to go here for a week, that sort of thing, which is pretty cool. And, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I do, still do see that as, as being pretty cool. Kind of building on that, what are some of the perks of the foreign service? Like a, I know a day-to-day life is going to be hard to give because it depends on the job you're doing and things like that. But what is the overall lifestyle of a foreign service officer? What's kind of typical? It's it's really tough to say. I mean, year to year, it's it's generally that you know you'd you'd be overseas for maybe like five or six years at a time, and then back in DC for a year or two at a time. Day to day, I mean, it's all over the place. Um, in in Lithuania, you know, I, I have like a morning press brief with the ambassador, and otherwise would be you know just going to whatever meetings I had. We always had a lot of nighttime events, either at our ambassador's residence or other sort of like diplomatic events at other embassies. In Washington, it's a bit more structured, I think, at least for me. But then when I was in Mumbai, it was very structured, especially with consular work, just because it's based entirely on visa demand. So every morning we did visa interviews and then every afternoon was sort of, you know, admin time or taking the time to follow up on hard cases. Um, So it really does depend on the job. So like in your post in Lithuania, you're doing a lot of project-based, hey, Nick, go and do this, figure out this, creative kind of things. And then you know when you're in your consular thing in Mumbai, it was very, I know I'm going to come in every day, do this in the morning, do this in the afternoon. And then it seems like Washington's similar to that, where it's more structure. And what, what about like the hours and, and things like that? Is it... <laughs> So that's, yeah, that's all over the place. So, I mean, for consular work, it's much more defined just because, again, it is based around the visa demand. So with scheduled interviews, you know when you're going in every day and by and large, you know when you're coming home every day. In Lithuania, you know, it was basically a standard work day. It was like eight to five or six, but then three or four nights a week, you'd you'd have an event or something to do at night. For me, since I was sort of the low man on the totem pole there, you know, I got pushed everything. Um, which was cool, actually. And that's that's what your first couple tours are about, just getting out and seeing everything. So everything the ambassador didn't want to do, everything her deputy didn't want to do, and everything my boss didn't want to do just got pushed to me because I was a public affairs, you know, new guy. So they anticipated me being the one going out and doing things, which was great. So, I mean, you, you know, I got my second day there, I, I showed up and uh, they had a, you know, it's Lithuania, so it's very like forest heavy, I guess. They were replanting trees to mark some battlefield for a battle that was 600 years old or something like that. So my second day there, they sent me out in a suit to plant a tree along with like all of the other ambassadors, but my ambassador couldn't go that day. So it was me. And I got out there at like eight in the morning and we planted trees for an hour, me and like an 80 year old French ambassador. And then they pull up this old Lada, like the old Soviet car, pop the trunk and there's just like pork fat and and vodka shots. Welcome to Lithuania. Yeah, at eight in the morning, or I guess at that point it was nine or 10 in the morning. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of that. And, uh, you know, the common saying in the foreign service is that you, you're, you're not donating your life necessarily, but you're definitely donating your liver. <laughs> well, I mean, you had done a full day's worth of work, man. You had planted a tree, so you might as well yes. celebrate. <laughs> I mean, take- that's more manual labor than I ever do, right? So, so that that's a funny story. And I you know, I know you get to do a lot of interesting things and people hear diplomat and they probably think 
kind of this James Bondy type feel, right? And and I know the day to day isn't always that. It might be super mundane, like when you're doing visa interviews day after day after day. I know you were telling me that in India, it just it got mind numbingly boring. But what are some of the coolest things that you've been able to do as someone in the foreign service that if you weren't in that position, if you weren't a U.S. diplomat, that you never would have gotten to experience or do? Yeah. Well, I think it's funny you, you brought up the, the India thing because now that I've you know been out of India for a couple of months and have a bit more perspective, it is cool to think – I mean, I guess at non-immigrant visas where you're doing tourist visas and student visas – well, student visas less so, I guess – you know, you, you feel like it's it's less of a life event. But certainly when you're doing immigrant visas and you're doing student visas and things like that, and, you know, it, it might be a minute or two minute long interview for you, but this is like one of the monumental moments in these people's lives. It is really cool to be like, wow, I am, you know, making, giving this person a green card essentially. And, you know, in five or 10 years, they'll be an American citizen. Like that is a really cool thing. Yeah, that um, is neat. That's something that, Man, it's crazy to think that it would be a one or two or three minute interview and the fate of that person's life, especially if they're coming from a country like India where they have nothing or, or some of these poor countries and they literally see going to the U.S. as as somewhat of a golden ticket that you can give that opportunity to someone. And again, it might be a one or two or three minutes to you. But it's neat that looking back, you have that perspective. And you're like, I, I got to change people's lives, even if it wasn't technically cool or fun for you. Yeah, it, it is just cool to, to see that. So I like that a lot. And then in Lithuania, you know, I, I like public affairs in general. And a lot of the stuff is just really cool. And you meet a ton of interesting people from all over the place. But when I got there, Lithuania had joined the EU, I guess, in 2004. And, you know, they were, they still had some leftover issues from Soviet times and all of that. And, um, their biggest issue, we thought at the time when I got there, one of their bigger issues, at least for civil, sort of civil society, was violence against women. And when I got there, they had the highest rate of domestic violence in the EU. It was something like, I think they were saying like 60% of women experienced domestic violence at some point in their life, whether from their husband or their father or whoever. I mean, it was this just incredibly high number. We got there and, and, or I got there and this was starting to pick up momentum and our ambassador got really, really into it. You know, we, we started giving grants to NGOs and to women's shelters and we would pull in, you know, like basketball players and Lithuanian actors and actresses and the world's strongest man, which is cool and do uh, commercials on TV, you know, bus stops just, you know, to raise awareness about domestic violence there were other people doing it, but we were the, we were the, uh, I guess the, the pocketbook for it. I mean, we really put a lot of money and time into it. And within a year, they'd actually passed the first ever domestic violence law in Lithuania. And you saw public opinion go from insisting it wasn't a problem to, I mean, everyone sort of realizing that this was a really big issue. The numbers actually speak for it too. So when I first got there, I guess that first year, there was something like, you know, six or 700 calls to the police nationwide reporting instances of domestic violence in a whole year uh, in a whole year i mean it was something okay. like that it was it was very low i don't know right. the exact numbers but Some it was an absurd in, number of like two in a day or something I mean, like and that. for a country of three million people that's you know that's that's pretty low and then in the first month or two after the law was enacted and people became aware of what was going on it, the calls were like in the thousands and whereas previously uh it had been you know, there might have been a couple hundred cases reported, but the number of cases actually investigated was about 5%. So the police weren't really doing anything about it. 
as soon as the law was enacted and people started calling, it went up to like 60 or 70 percent of cases were actually investigated. So, I mean, it was really cool to see the police especially come on board because before they were some one of the groups that had sort of pushed it to the side. And then to see them really realize that this was an issue and want to tackle it was really cool. And at the time, you know, I was, I'd was i been in the foreign service for a year or two and thought this kind of thing happens all the time. And, you know, one of my bosses at the time was like, you know, this is to actually see public opinion shift and to see a law be implemented and to see that law be taken seriously so quickly never happens. Like that will be the high point of your career. You will never see anything move that quickly again. It must just be something that takes a lot of time. I mean, you kind of set the groundwork and usually it would be something that maybe five or 10 years in the future. Wow. I played a bit of a part in that because I did this back then, but not like a flip right away to I've made a big difference. Yeah. And I, I mean, and now that I think about it, it really shows about, you know, Lithuania as a society is really, you know, is really progressing quickly. And that's one of the reasons I love Eastern Europe so much is that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, it was very Soviet. I mean, not very Soviet, but, you know, the mentality was still sort of there. And as soon as, you know, they became independent again, and really sort of became their own country, like they really yearn for these things. And it's just really cool to be there to see these I mean, government's form and, and all of that. It's it's cool. Yeah. And and we joke, I joke a lot with you about you're the only person that works less than I do. And it always seems like you're on vacation because whenever we're talking, like, I'm going here this weekend or, or there. But it is neat that, that you got to get that done. And it's not just a ceremonial tree planning, although funny experience, but it's it's real yeah, work. The that actual got things done. happening. And it's funny. That's my just, I guess... My mom asked me basically the same question the other week, and we were talking about it. And I mentioned the the whole violence against women thing, and she was she was shocked. She was like, "You, I had no idea you'd ever actually done anything that important." <laughs> it was, oh, it was wow. very much like your reaction. It's just funny. Yeah, what are moms for? And and that is really neat. What about some of the logistics of the foreign service when it comes to vacations? Because you know, people who are joining the foreign service obviously want to travel. So you don't want to just live in this country, but you want to have time to take vacations. And it seems like the foreign service is pretty good with that, as well as kind of pay benefits. You don't have to get into exact specifics with your salary. But if someone is looking to do this, what kind of benefit package and things like that can they expect? I mean, it's, right off the bat, you're it's it's doubly nice in that you are you know a U.S. government employee and you you know you're compensated as such. So it, we we have a, a separate pay scale, but it's very close to just the the civil servant pay scale that you get in the U.S. Um, it, it mirrors that pretty closely. But then you're earning this salary, you know, living in the rest of the world. So I mean, in some countries that's great, and in, in you know obviously the majority of the world that's great. In some countries, I guess like in London or in Scandinavia, you know, it, it's more of a challenge, but, you know, you're still able to live quite comfortably, my God. And then your housing's generally thrown in. I mean, there's a, it's a nice expat package as well. Um, for, for people with kids, the schooling's generally taken care of. It's, it's a really nice, you know, compensation package, I guess you could say in general. And and great health benefits, I assume, same as you'd get in the States if you were working for the government. Yeah. Um, health benefits-wise, definitely. I mean, each post or almost every post has either an American doctor or nurse there. The bigger posts will have a doctor. Um, in Lithuania, we had a, Lith- a Lithuanian doctor who worked there. 
Um, and then they p- take care of like your sort of primary care needs. And then if you need to go somewhere else, they'll like recommend somebody to you. And we have a sort of international health plan that helps with that. Very cool. What about the travel part, the vacation part? You know, is there is it two weeks? Is it four weeks? Or is it kind of a mesh of wherever you are in the world? So it's, I mean, vacation wise, it's, it's a government package. So, you know, I started with probably like 15 vacation days. And I think at most you get up to like 30 vacation days after, you know, probably 10 or 15 years, um, maybe a little bit more than that. But then you get, you get U.S. federal holidays off as well as local holidays. So in a country like Lithuania, it, it tends to, you know, where their calendar mirrors our hours a bit, you know, you have Christmas and all of that. Uh, you don't get as many holidays off. But in a country like India, where, you know, there's Muslim holidays, Hindu festivals, uh, local national days, uh, we got what, 21 or 22 holidays off a year. And a lot of them fall in the fall. So you get, you know, three, four or five day weekends every year. No so, wonder it seemed like you were never working. I know, because I, I hardly ever did, it seems. In that sense, it's really cool. Um, so on paper, you know, the, the perks for travel are quite nice. But there's also this great culture of, of travel. I mean, people join the Foreign Service for a whole host of reasons. But I think what does unite all of us is that, you know, we want to see the world. We want to see different things. And so it's understood that if you have a three or four day weekend, you will be going on an international trip somewhere generally you know, bosses understand when you are going off to some crazy place to do something. Um, so in that sense, it's, it is really cool too, just that, you know, people understand what you want to do with your time and, and where you want to go. Well, and I guess too, you kind of have an, a built in network of people who have traveled all over the globe. So you can just say, Hey, I'm going here. And there's probably a bunch of people. If you're in a big posting, of course, a bunch of people are like, I've been there, I've been there. And it's just must be a lot of cool recommendations as well. Yeah, it's so it's I mean, it's funny in Lithuania, everyone kind of went to the same few like big European capitals. Um, and some people did really cool trips, like taking the train to St. Petersburg, that kind of stuff. But in Mumbai, where you know, you're there, and there's a couple of the big Indian things you want to see. But basically, you know, the world's your oyster, you have direct flights everywhere from Newark to Hong Kong, I mean, you can go anywhere. It was really cool to, to have so many people around who are that into travel because they all had fantastic recommendations. I mean, you saw that when you were there too. I mean, you just, you say a random place that you want to go to and someone will have been there and give you the tour guide that you need to talk to and recommend this place to stay. I mean, it's really cool. Yeah, we were there and we we had no plans when we landed to hang out with Nick in Mumbai. He had only gotten in two days prior. So we kind of yeah, just literally, resource. Yeah, literally dropped in on him and he had been there two days, but we went out to brunch with some other foreign service workers and you know, we said, Well, we don't know what we want to do in India. And it was like boom, 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 boom. You know, recommendations basically for the whole country, you know, guides to call. It, it was it was pretty amazing. I mean, we couldn't fit it all in actually because we didn't have enough time, but it was it was really, really cool and a lot of people who are listening, well, I guess everyone who's listening who hasn't met you before, Nick, they don't know that you are basically the man behind the man when it comes to me and my travel bug and wanderlust because you were the first person that I knew that I was friends with who really did travel the world and go places. And when you were younger, your parents took you there, so it was cool. But even when you went to university, you're like, I'm going to go up to Canada. I thought, what the heck? He's going to British Columbia. Like, I don't even know what British Columbia is. You went off to school, then you did a year in uh, Germany to study abroad. Then you went to Japan to teach English, which then I followed in your footsteps and did based on your recommendation as well. So you are, as far as my friends, you're, you're definitely the 
most well-traveled person. And um, it's just cool because I, I've been able to pick your brain for years. And I feel like now you've got to do a lot of stuff. You actually talked me into going to Eastern Europe and saying, here's a really cool spot. And now I love it there as well. So you know, kudos to you. Obviously, I, I, I should just say thank you to you, really, man, because it, it really is. It's nice to have friends who spur you on because you a lot of people don't do it. So you're like, well, am I crazy that I want to see all this stuff? And then you're like, no, man, I've already seen it. You need to go. Yeah. And it, it really helps to have people there to, to push you and to say it enough. You know, like my brother went everywhere I wanted to go before I got there. Um, so no, it, it's definitely true. So um, we really have Nathaniel to thank. Yes, we do. And my parents, you know, I think with my parents, both as teachers who had off in the summer, um, it, it just, it, it helped that, you know, they had the interest and they had the time and obviously that they had the means to do it. So it was, it was really cool as a kid to start with that. And then you just get wanderlust and then it goes from there, you know? Yeah. It, it takes its own form or a mind of its own then in, in each person. And so for me, whenever I'm looking to go somewhere, I, I always ask you first, and you inevitably have recommendations. What are some of the coolest experiences you've had, places you've been that you've loved, or just experiences that you had traveling that you thought, man, this is, this is why I'm traveling? Yeah, it, you know, it, it changes every, every day. So <laughs> it's, um, I, obviously, I, I like different places and I like trips, but I, I really like just sort of like moments too. And I think that's, that's the same for everybody. It sounds sort of cliched, but it's cliche for a reason that, you know, you have these mental images of like one specific moment that really just sort of summarizes or highlights the whole trip for you. Um, I love Corsica. You know, I'd always wanted to go there, but I didn't really know why. And I had the time to do it the other year. So I, I went down and drove around for a few days just by myself in a rental car and just sort of figured it out as I went. And I loved it. I mean, it was it was as gorgeous as Croatia, except with these massive mountains in the background, awesome food, um, sort of French infrastructure. But, you know, I was coming from India, so I really learned to appreciate infrastructure. Then. <laughs> any infrastructure is yes, good infrastructure. Yes, any, any infrastructure. Yeah, it was just a really cool place. And, you know, it was sort of, it, it had the familiarity of France. But, you know, Corsica, well, officially French is not really French. Um, so it was cool to see this sort of counterculture, you know, alternate culture at the same time. So I, I loved Corsica. That was really cool. Yeah. And I know that you've, you did a lot of backpacking before I knew anyone who backpacked. I didn't know really what it was. And you were kind of the only person doing a lot of independent travel where you said, I'm going to go to an area and I don't exactly have everything planned out, but I'm going to figure it out. Do you have any experiences or any times where, where that happened that was the travel story, you know, that, that you can really relate to as like, okay, things might not have worked out the way I thought they were going to work out, but it ended up being better in the end, which is yeah. basically travel in a nutshell. Yeah, no, it, it totally is. I mean, I, uh, one of the regrets I have with the foreign service now, I mean, it's not really a regret. I guess it shows that I'm you know, maturing, I guess. And I put that in quotation marks. It's just that I don't have the, the time to really you know, take three weeks and just go somewhere and see what happens. You know, it's very, my vacations or trips are very planned now, which is is cool. And it's a, a great way to see the world. And it's very different from how it used to be. But I do miss, you know, just showing up somewhere and, and running with it. And the best example of that was when I was in Germany. And, you know, they had this semester pausa, the two month gap between semesters. And um, I wasn't going to come back to the US. So I took the time and just traveled around Europe for two months and sort of to save money, went around on the periphery a bit and like flew from Germany to Malta and then went up through Italy and into Croatia and 
uh, went up through Eastern Europe and it was just awesome. And, you know, I, I had a vague sense of where I wanted to go and what places I wanted to stop at, but you know, you'd show up at a place and, and see what old woman was there with a sign offering a room in her apartment and you'd go with her and stay for a day or two. And it was really cool. Of course, on that trip, uh, what was supposed to be a day in Havar in Croatia on the island of Havar turned into like a week, uh, because there was a massive storm and the boat couldn't get to us to take us off. So I ended up being stranded in a apartment for a week with absolutely nothing to do. Well, I guess there's worse places than the island off the coast of Croatia. I but- know. I, I, I love complaining about the, this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, so that was a little bit, you know, a little hard. Um, the, the classic story that my family all loves is when I went to, right before I went to Germany, I went with a friend from college who was Norwegian and we went and visited his grandparents who lived in Lillehammer in Norway and it was awesome. And then we went to Greece and stayed with one of his friends whose family owns a hotel on a small island, not really around the other tourist areas, but sort of northeast of, of Athens. So going in the opposite direction. And we got there and we had a great couple of days just hanging out with, with this guy's family. And then the friend who I traveled with uh, met a shopkeeper one night and felt sorry for him and ended up giving him all of his money. I mean, he was swindled for a couple thousand dollars. And when he found out that he'd been swindled, went back and the guy was like, oh, no, I spent all that money, blah, blah, blah. Wait, he gave it to him or he, he gave it got to it him. taken? No, no, he gave it to him. Okay, um, weird. He went, the, the guy, you know, had one story and said, oh, my, you know, my wife is sick with this. And then my friend gave him some money and then said, well, if you're giving me money for this, I also need it for this. And that went on over the course of the night. And um, it was it's an incredibly strange story. I'm amazed that someone would, would do this. But uh, ended up to the point where he was broke and actually in debt to me because I'd loaned him money. And he called his parents, sort of had a breakdown and, and left. Like he went back to Athens and his parents paid, paid for him to fly home. Um, so I ended up being stranded in on this island in Greece, which, you know, it's not the worst case in the world, but I had two weeks to get to Germany and I had no idea how to do that. And I was really frustrated. I was really, you know, uh, sort of, well, you were stuck. I mean, I was stuck. I mean, I was, <laughs> you know, you were with a guy who's, you're staying at their hotel and all of a sudden, boom, you're by yourself. Yeah. And, um, I was for a day or two, it was, you know, it's just hard to, to deal with. And then, you know, I got back to Athens, figured out the, the train to Thessaloniki in the North and went there for a day and loved it. And then gradually just like called a series of buses up through Bulgaria and Romania. And, um, what turned out to be really, or sorry, what initially had been so frustrating and, and bad, it just turned awesome. You know, it was the first time that I really traveled by myself without a plan for, for more than a day or two. And, and I absolutely loved it. And, you know, it was showing up in the, some random Bulgarian mountain town and finding a place to stay and then, you know, going and eating meat off a saber that I didn't know what it was. And <laughs> it was, it was just cool. And, uh, you know, and that was the first time I'd really seen Eastern Europe beyond, you know, just Croatia or Prague or something like that. So it was really cool to, to really be out there and be on my own. And what's neat about that is you obviously couldn't plan that or you wouldn't have ever planned that. So if plans had gone as as you thought, it probably would have been a nice vacation and what have you. But instead, you got to travel through Eastern Europe, really fall in love with that region because it was you're by yourself. Everything you're experiencing was so new and it was 
you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know where you're going to stay. And uh, that that's travel, I think. And that's, I think, why people fall in love with travel is because you don't know around what's around the next bend, as opposed to when you're at home, you you kind of fall into a routine or a rut. It's, it's funny, though. I can tell as I'm aging that, like, well, I really have nostalgia for those times that at the same time, I, I can't, you know, I, I would function in a situation like that. But I, it, I would, would be much more afraid than I was then, you know, sort of the stupidity of youth, I guess. It's not that I'm that old now, but it's just funny to think about. I think it's one of those definite signs of aging. For sure. For sure. Then what are some of your best tips for traveling more and spending less? Because you've done a lot of budget travel and I... I really think you've done it. You're you're not as frugal as me, so I think you've done it in a I way. Mean, come on, Travis. <laughs> Would you pay for that hotel in in Agra? Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> so I think you've done it in a good way that you've meshed kind of. Okay, I am on somewhat of a budget, but I I actually I'm going to you know not cut every corner here. So you've meshed it in a good way to be a a somewhat of a budget traveler, but but find out ways to make it luxurious as well. What are some of your best tips for doing that? Well, I think, um, you know, it comes down to where you're going and when you're going. So location-wise, you know, I, Europe's what I know best, but location-wise, not necessarily going to the most traveled places um, and sort of taking the time to seek out a place that, you know, if, if not equal to where, you know, the, the popular tourist destination, at least, you know, at least just as cool to go to. You can go to Venice and spend X amount of dollars, but go two hours away to Ravini in Croatia, which is, in my mind, much cooler and much nicer and better food, and spend much less generally. But on top of that, too, then timing. I mean, one of the nice things about being a student in Europe is that you're there, you know, year-round, and most of your vacations don't fall uh, during the summer season when everyone travels because, you know, July and August is crazy in Europe, but otherwise it's fairly doable. So just learning that a lot of places are just as cool, if not nicer, in September, October, or April and May than they are during the peak times. And the nice part about my job now is that, you know, I can basically, I can't take vacation whenever I want, but there's no stricture on what time of year I do take vacation, you know? So, uh, the, the timing really, really helps. And then beyond that, I think it's just knowing people. The coolest part of my job, which I've thought about before, but never really realized is that you know, I, I now have this massive network of friends and colleagues who live everywhere. I mean, I went when I, I always liked geography and knew that kind of stuff. But when I started the State Department, I was shocked by how many countries on earth I'd never heard of or thought of, you know, <laughs> right, right. And, um, and now, not only do I know about them, but I know someone who's lived there. I mean, in the case of almost every country on earth, it's crazy to have that network and to, you know, have friends who constantly are saying, oh, come and visit, you know, you have to come and visit is really cool. And um, it, that's another part of the State Department that is cool is that it people anticipate you visiting. You know, it's, it's never a false offer. Yeah, that's that's really neat. I think you make a good point with kind of finding the periphery. You used that term before. And you've done a very good job about that. And you've kind of helped me do that as well when I travel, finding the cities or the areas that are you know, not so far off the beaten path that you're, you know, hiking through a jungle with a machete or anything crazy, but that just aren't really as well known. You've mentioned to me going to Sarajevo and we went to Sarajevo and that's a great example of an awesome city, fantastic city, 
that is really cheap. Not a lot of people know about. I mean, they've heard of it, but not many people travel there. And it's really not even that hard to get to. No, it's what, three hours from Dubrovnik? I mean, it's, right. it's so, right there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's a great point to find those places that, that are a little bit undiscovered. You don't, no one's going to turn over a, a complete hidden gem like finding Machu Picchu for the first time, but there's many places that Americans and your typical tourists and travelers don't get to that are very accessible, very fun, and cheaper than their counterparts. Yeah. I, I think the, the only caveat to that is that you, you need to be prepared to be frustrated every now and then. It's, I guess it's a high risk, high reward. That sounds stupid in this context, but I think you do every now and then mess up and go to a place that's not nearly as cool as you think. Yeah, well, Um, let's talk about mishaps. You've kind of mentioned the one in Greece. I I know you have a ton of mishaps you've told me before, but what sticks out in your mind? Not not a ton, but you've traveled quite extensively. And anyone who's traveled has these mishaps or mistakes or, or things that they've done that they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I did that. Like when I got stuck in Singapore because I didn't have any pages in my passport. Like I'm a travel <laughs> podcast host and yeah, a writer. I sh- probably shouldn't make that mistake. Yeah, that's just, that's kind of stupid. Right. Um, so what are, what is one that might stick out to you? Well, it's, it's funny, you know, like I, when you say mishap, I, I, I know people who've, you know, gotten in like the wrong cab in Russia and then ended up naked in like two hours outside of St. Petersburg and have to get back into the city with nothing. Like, so that's what I think of when I think of mishap. But I think for me, it's always just been these sort of mistakes where like, I think it's going to work out well and it doesn't. And for me, the the big examples, uh, you know, actually in Singapore, near Singapore in Bingtang, that island that's maybe like an hour south of Singapore. And the north part's very resorty. It's really nice. Um, a lot of golf courses. And it's sort of the, the place where Singa, Singaporeans go to hang out. But the south part of the island, I was told, at least when I was in Singapore, is is very, you know, quote unquote, Indonesian. And I didn't have the time to really get to the rest of Indonesia. So I was like, well, screw it. I'll just go here. It'll be great. And um, I got there. I took an hour long ferry ride to get there. Everyone kind of stared at me when I got on the ferry because I had no idea why. I mean, no, no one had any idea why I'd be going there. Right. Like, why is a tall white guy walking onto this ferry and going to the south of this island? Yeah, exactly. And I got off there and I got in a cab. And of course, the guy had a cousin who owned a, you know, a beach resort or something yeah, did like he try that. To I sell you exactly diamonds as well or jewelry. Like, I know a cousin who has a beach resort and a diamond shop. Actually, I still have two masks from that island that his other cousin sold me. So it's funny that you say that. Yeah, so we got in a, in a car, drove for 45 minutes to the absolute middle of nowhere to this beach resort. I got out of the cab. There was nothing around except two huts, one that this guy's cousin and his family stepped in, and the other one was a hut that sort of jutted out over the water. Um, the beach, I mean, it was it was nice, but it wasn't very nice. It was, kind of, it was just kind of weird. There was nobody there. Um, the hut I slept in was on the water, which sounds awesome, but ended up actually being right above where the waves crash. So you couldn't sleep at night at all. Um, so you're almost in the water, not exactly yeah. on. You're like so the yeah the it sort of went out at a ninety degree angle from the beach, and the last hut on the beach, um, sorry, the last cabin in this hut was right on the beach, which would have been better. But I was like, oh man, you know, if I'm here, I should sleep out over the water. So I stayed in the last room, and of course, the tide when I was there was such that the the waves crashed literally like two feet under my bed. So yeah, that I didn't sleep very well there. And then um, the all-inclusive meals—not that I'd asked for that—but that was the only meal I option I had there. 
was his cousin cooking me ramen. So I had two bowls of ramen every day for three days. Man, and then, you can't ask more from a resort. No, it's all inclusive. No. And then after, after two days or three days, uh, the guy came back and picked me up, drove me back to the ferry terminal. We ran out of gas halfway there and I had to hitchhike back to the ferry terminal. And then I got on the ferry and went back to Singapore and the friends I was staying with, I got there. And I told them this, and they're like, well, we told you, you moron, didn't you know? And it's like, well, I wanted to see Indonesia. And they're like, that's, that's, A, that's not really Indonesia. And B, we told you, like, you're being a moron. There's probably nicer all-inclusive resorts in Indonesia. I'm going to throw that out there. Just Yes, you know. thank you, Travis. And now, you know, now that I I take the time to, to look them up and go there, but that's then. That's awesome. I think you make a good distinction between mishaps and kind of, uh, you know, just things not happening the way you think they're like nothing bad happened, but it just wasn't the way you thought it would be. And it was quote unquote, like a wasted three days, except now you have an amazing stories to tell. And I bet the ramen was, was at least half decent. So. Oh yeah. The ramen was fantastic too. No, it's funny. I mean, it, I, for me, I don't, I don't know if, how well I process like bad things happening to me, I guess that, that sounds kind of stupid, but you know, when my family was, was robbed in Costa Rica, when I was in high school, we were there and, um, we were like, you know, we are, we parked our rental car on the street and went into like a bakery or something. And we're standing in there and I, I look out and see a guy going through our car. And at first I was like, Oh, you know, I didn't realize dad was wearing a green shirt today or something like that. Like it looked odd. And then I looked and saw there was a Costa Rican guy rifling through our stuff. And then he like got out four or five bags and just start walking away with them. And I ran out there and was like, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And of course, you know, he's, he was probably like five, three or something like that. And this big six, two, 17 year old comes charging down the street. So he dropped the bags and ran and I put the bags in the car and came back inside. And my entire family thought I'd made it up to this day. They still think I lied about this because it's just so absurd. It's just, it's yeah. So I, I, I don't know how much I actually think about the bad stuff or how well I, I process it. Yeah, you know, well, the, that's that's awesome because you've told three stories in this podcast from the, the Greek island one to uh, the all-inclusive, all-inclusive air quotes in Indonesia. And then this one that I've never heard before. And it I think it just goes to show you that if you're open, you know, w- with your mindset and you're, as you mentioned, you know, high risk, high reward, but as you're open and you're saying things can go wrong when I travel, I understand that. And you kind of just take it as it comes. That's obviously the best type of attitude that you oh, yeah. have. No, definitely. Cool. Well, Nick, what do you have in the pipeline? Where will you guys be heading next? I know there's a lot of destinations that you haven't been to that you want to go to. Oh, well, you know, the, the next one's Detroit. So I've never been to Michigan. So I'm very excited for a couple of weeks. We have a wedding in, in and Jeff Boss's wedding actually in, uh, in Detroit. Well, so, you'll have to let us know how that stacks up with the uh, uh, with Bing Tang. I'm sure yeah, it's right up there, neck and neck. It's right up there. Tourist right up destinations. There. Um, we do have some of our best friends from Mumbai, who are actually from Phoenixville originally, are in Haiti now. So we'd really like to get down and see them. Um, you know, it's one of those things like, I have no reason to go to Haiti otherwise, so why not go now while I have a, a good reason to? Awesome. Um, and then, yeah, some friends in uh, in South America, in Bogota, which I'd really like to get to. And then uh, in Chile, it would be nice to get to as well. But I don't know if we'll have the time. So, really stay cool. tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah, you always have a travel adventure. And then I can pick your brain and just follow you along like six exactly. years behind. I'll yeah, just do the five to ten years thing. afterwards, Travis will be there. 
Awesome. Well, Nick, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy diplomatic schedule. Oh, thank you, Travis. And yes. Guys, if you're interested in what Nick has been talking about, we'll link up everything in the show notes. You can find those at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash US Diplomat. Also, don't forget, we are still rocking podcast Gluttony here. So a show every single weekday. I know you love that name, Nick, because we've always yeah, talked about being I gluttonous. like Gluttony. Yeah. Monday through Friday, every single weekday. If you like it, let us know. You can send me an email, Trav at Extra Pack of Peanuts. If you're social media savvy, you can send me a tweet at Pack of Peanuts. Give us suggestions for shows or guests that you want to have on because one of the reasons I thought of bringing Nick on was because someone sent me an email saying, I'd love to hear from someone who was a U.S. diplomat or someone who's been in the Peace Corps. And we have a guest coming on to talk about that. So let us know what you want to hear. We want to do the shows that you want us to do. And of course, we love iTunes reviews. So if you're listening through iTunes, feel free to send some love that way. That's all we've got today. Nick, thank you again. Thanks again, Travis. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And until tomorrow, happy free travels. <laughs>